This is Under the Trees, a seminar on freedom with Bill Ayers. Welcome back to Under the Tree. I'm Bill Ayers, and with the help of comrades Palace Shaw, Roxana Espos, Light Eileen, and Bernadine Dorn, we're broadcasting, as always, in the spirit and the memory of Malik Aline. Thanks to the freedom fighter and guitar wizard Tom Morello for Let Freedom Ring, our Under the Tree theme song. We're transmitting, as always, on the freedom frequency, calling on you to join us as we look uneasily into the world we've inherited and struggle toward a world that could be or should be but is not yet. And we're broadcasting from the so-called Chicagoland area of Illinois, a contradiction, a conundrum, a crime scene. Chicago is a place of outsized and crazy complexity, a city raised on a foundation of genocide, colonial ambition, and stolen land, built up by the hands of exploited immigrant workers and African ancestored people, escaping terror and the afterlife of slavery during the Great Migration. All of us who stand on humanity's freedom side can and should remember and honor all of it. The long history of stolen land and resources, genocide, oppression, and exploitation, and pledge to work each day to keep our eyes and our hearts open in our shared struggle for peace and repair, justice and joy, balance and love. We're heading over to 18th Street to the dazzling Pilsen Community Books to talk with an old friend and comrade, the intrepid activist, journalist, and co-host of Democracy Now!, Juan Gonzalez. We're overjoyed that Juan and his partner, Lilia Fernandez, have moved to Chicago and excited to spend some time with them. Stick with us. Uh, my name is Mandy Medley. I'm one of the worker owners here at Pilsen Community Books. We are a bookstore and worker cooperative, which means everyone that works here owns it. And we are so, so, so excited to welcome our two favorite radicals here this evening. It is a real treat um, to welcome Juan Gonzalez both here and to Chicago. And then, yeah. As well as our dear friend, Bill Ayers. Um, so I won't take up too much of our time, but I would like would like to introduce them both. Um, first, our old friend who's been here many times and done wonderful, great events here, uh, Bill Ayers, Distinguished Professor of Education and Senior University Scholar at the University of Illinois at Chicago, retired, founder of both the Small Schools Workshop and the Center for Youth and Society, taught courses in interpretive and qualitative research, oral history, creative nonfiction, urban school change, and teaching and the modern predicament. A graduate of the University of Michigan, the Bank Street College of Education, Bennington College and Teachers College, Columbia University, uh, Ayers has written extensively about social justice, democracy and education, the cultural context of schooling and teaching as an essentially intellectual, ethical and political enterprise. And we do have several of his books over there um, at the front. He is a past member of the Executive Committee of the Faculty Senate and Vice President of the Curriculum Division of the American Educational Research Association. 
Um, and his articles have appeared in many, many journals, including the Harvard Educational Review, the Journal of Teacher Education, Teachers College Record, Rethinking Schools, The Nation, Educational Leadership, The New York Times, and the Cambridge Journal of Education. It's quite an intro. Thank you, Bill, for being here. <laughs> and our guest of honor this evening, again, we are so, so, so honored to welcome Juan Gonzalez, an award-winning journalist and investigative reporter who spent 29 years as a columnist for the New York Daily News. A two-time winner of the George Polk Award, he is co-host of Democracy Now!, which we listen to every single morning, author of Harvest of Empire, A History of Latinos in America, which we have up front, and a founder and past president of the National Association of Hispanic Journalists. Gonzalez is also affiliate faculty for the Center for Latin American Studies and the Department of Latino and Caribbean Studies. And this bio might be old, forgive me if it is. He serves as the records representative to the New Jersey Civic Information Consortium and as JMS faculty liaison to the records daily Targum. Before beginning his career in journalism, Gonzalez spent several years as a Latino community and civil rights activist, helping to found and lead the Young Lords Party during the late 1960s, a group whose daring style of radical protest has been chronicled in several recent books, including the acclaimed Young Lords, A Radical History, which we have up here, and in the award-winning documentary film Takeover, which premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival in 2021. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy, and thank you, Catherine, and thank you, Mackenzie. All of you who are the worker owners of this store have brought real light into 18th Street, and we really appreciate everything you do. Uh, before we start, I want to say a couple of things. One is, for those of you who know the store, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're going to buy a book. And uh, for those of you who don't know, this is a valuable public space. It's a public square. And as the public is being erased, it's critical that we have institutions like this, where we can face one another with conversations like this, read books like this. And so I urge you, whatever else you do tonight, buy two books. One, by Juan Gonzalez's uh, <laughs> Harvest of Empire, and two, any other book you buy, The Murder of Fred Hampton, uh, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments, Juan will sign it for you. But buy it because you, <clears throat> because you should support this bookstore, um, an invaluable public asset that we can all be proud of. Second thing I wanted to say before we get started is that we are taping this um, for our podcast, Under the Tree, a seminar on freedom. And um, when we do the taping here, it's a little awkward because you have to set up like this. But we're not going to do all the all the segments that we do in the regular taping. But we do typically begin with a poem. And I thought, because I heard Juan give a speech last last week, I think in Washington, right? And he he read from this poem. So I thought... Since we usually begin with a poem, let's begin with a poem. And Roxana Espos, our Chilean comrade right here, is going to read a few opening lines from Puerto Rican Obituary. Puerto Rican Obituary by Pedro Pietri. They worked. They were always on time. They were never late. They never spoke back when they were insulted. They worked. They never took days off that were not on the calendar. They never went on strike without permission. They worked 10 days a week and were only paid for five. They worked, they worked, they worked and they died. They died broke, they died owing. They died never knowing what the entrance of the first national city bank looks like. 
Thank you. That's um, Pedro Pietre, Puerto Rican obituary. And I heard Juan read it last, parts of it last week. It's a long, long poem. Um, but I thought it was an appropriate beginning. The introduction that Mandy gave of Juan was um, wonderful. And I just add one note, which is that she mentioned that he was a two-time winner of the George Polk Award um, for journalism. And that award is an award that goes to a journalist who is displayed real courage, moral courage, intellectual courage, personal courage. And so the people who've won it are people like I.F. Stone and James Baldwin and Isabel Wilkerson and our own Jamie Calvin. So it's not something that, you know, just goes by in a list of awards. It's something that really has huge significance for those of us who care about freedom and social justice. Um, so I'm really, I find that just the thing to underline in Juan's, um, in Juan's biography. But since you won the George Polk Award, Juan, and, and I'm so glad you're willing to sit here in this bookstore and have this conversation. Maybe you'd say a word about being an activist journalist for all these years. I mean, I knew you, what, 60 years ago. But um, but let's start with the activist journalism, because that's a title that was hurled at you uh, disparagingly, and yet one that you kind of embraced in both your mind and your heart. Yeah, well, I think it was a uh, first of all, uh, thanks to the bookstore and uh, for having uh, having us and to Bill for inviting me to participate in this event. I'm still getting uh, used to Chicago uh, and and uh, to the. Uh, I actually only moved here at the end of December, so it's only been a few months, and I've already been thrown into all kinds of situations here in the Chicago political world uh, that I'm trying to get a, a, accustomed to. In addition to that, I felt. Uh, uh, sick uh, last week, so I've been recovering. So I, I may sound a little nasal as I as I talk uh, with you this evening. Uh, but in terms of activism, yes, that's always been a a, a problem uh, for me, and uh, because I started working in, I guess, in the what you'd call the mainstream or what I call the the, the corporate commercial media world in um, in nineteen seventy eight at the Philadelphia Daily News. And at the time, uh, I, I initially started as a news clerk and then was quickly promoted to a, a general assignment reporter by the newspaper. Uh, and as I mentioned in a recent uh, 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 talk I gave, my first year, my rookie year, was the year of the uh, Iran hostage crisis. And so I was stunned to see in the um, in the newsroom a petition signed by all the reporters and, and most of the editors at the newspaper calling on the White House to drop a nuclear bomb on Tehran uh, if the if the hostages were uh, harmed, the Iran hostages were harmed. And I was stunned. I'm saying here are news, supposedly reporters are being, are proclaiming to be objective. And here they are signing a petition to the president to uh, start a nuclear war with uh, Iran. So, uh, I immediately went to my editor-in-chief and said, listen, you know, you've got a policy of allowing any reporter on the staff to write an opinion piece. So I'd like to counter that petition. I'd like to write a column, send the Shah back uh, to uh, to Iran. So I basically did a, a, an opposing column to the entire newsroom. Here I was just a young rookie reporter. So I was immediately branded uh, as an activist, uh, an advocate journalist, and I had that battle throughout my early years in commercial journalism. 
And but there was another instance about a year later when the Pope came to visit uh, Philadelphia, and uh, at the time I was already act- I was active. I, I, I worked the three to eleven shift because obviously newspapers operate twenty four hours. So I was working the afternoon shift. So I had my mornings. Also, I used to participate in different activities in the Puerto Rican community. And at one protest that I participated in, apparently one of the reporters spotted me and then told my city editor, hey, this guy Gonzalez is out there participating in a protest. So as soon as I walk in in the afternoon, my city editor says, what the fuck were you doing uh, in a protest this morning down by City Hall? I said, what do you mean? And he he says, you know, I can't have that. I can't have my reporters participating in activist causes uh, while they're reporting. I said, well, I'm not reporting on this issue. I'm just participating as a citizen. So this became a big issue constantly with me uh, and the paper. But luckily, when the Pope came and they assigned the lead reporter uh, to the um, uh, to cover him was a guy by the name of Tom Cooney. He was the star uh, writer at the newspaper at the time. But my having been a Catholic and an altar boy, I I knew who the Catholics were in the newsroom. And uh, so I said to the editor, do do you realize that Tom Cooney is the president of the Holy Name Society of his church? Right, He is an activist leader in the Catholic community, in his Catholic neighborhood, and you have no problem with him writing all the lead stories on the Pope's visit uh, to, uh, to Philadelphia. But you have a problem with me participating in a, in an act, social activity what, of what which I'm not writing <laughs> I'm, I'm not writing anything about what happened there uh, so that became a constant battle uh, between me and the paper until I was counseled by a wonderful man and a, a true pillar of uh, journalism in the African-American community in the United States a guy by the name of Chuck Stone uh, Chuck St- uh, Stone had been a uh, an editor of the Chicago Defender. He had been a Tuskegee Airman. He had been a speechwriter for Adam Clayton Powell Jr. when Adam Clayton Powell Jr. was the most visible African-American leader in Congress. And he somehow in his later years had ended up as a as the the main African-American columnist in the city of Philadelphia. Uh, and so Chuck took me under his wing <laughs> And he said, Juan, don't pay attention to those people. Uh, just do what you believe you need to do and uh, always remember to document everything that they tell you and keep a written record of your conversations with them. Always do everything in writing. Uh, and so you have your own record. Uh, and then he said, the other thing he said to me is check the union contract because mm. we had the newspaper deal represented the, uh, all the reporters at the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Philadelphia Daily News. And the Philadelphia Bulletin, because there were there were four papers in Philadelphia at the time. And I checked the union contract, and there was actually a provision in the union contract that said that if a guild member had been elected to a public office or an office of public responsibility, they had the right to request a leave of absence from their media company, their from the paper, for a term of up to four years. So the the newspaper guild, which was organized by Haywood Brune uh, and had, and was a left wing union when it started, had clearly confronted this in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and s- figured out a solution to the uh, to this conflict. And it was clear that reporters had a right to participate as citizens uh, in the activities of the society and could even run for elected office. Uh, they did; they just couldn't 
hold office and also be a reporter. That was a problem. So they could take a leave. So uh, at one point, I invoked the leave clause. And I think I was the only person ever in Philadelphia to invoke the leave clause uh, to serve as president of the National Congress for Puerto Rican Rights for a year. And uh, But I learned that early on, that all of this battle, all of these battles over activism have been fought out in the past. Mm. And in fact, that there's been a constant battle over the issue of what is the social role of journalists in a society. And it's not a settled question. And the issue of the so-called objective journalism was actually really only a, uh, a an effort that the industry attempted to impose in the post-World War II period. Those of you who know journalism history know that there was something called the Hutchins Commission that was established post-World War II by the head of Time Life, uh, Henry Luce, uh, who basically uh, sought, uh, and it was, the reason was that as more and more newspapers became monopolies within cities, uh, the, the old news media had different newspapers representing different political perspectives. So you would choose to read the paper that you felt closest to. However, as monopolies began to be established in all the major cities in America, the economic imperative for the newspaper publishers was no longer uh, to have differing views. It was to have a tent under which all views would be held because, because they needed to keep all the customers and readers for that one monopoly paper. So the, uh, the movement toward objective journalism is a political uh, response to the economics of monopoly uh, journalism, monopoly capitalist journalism. And so it's only been a short period of time in American history from the 1950s to about the 1990s, 2000s, when this idea of objective journalism gained currency. Uh, how, of course, now we've had segmented media, we have cable, we have all, we've got uh, uh, social media. So now it's the industry is no longer concentrated in a monopoly way anymore. So now, obviously, it's gone out of fashion yeah. uh, to be an objective journalist. But it w- I always maintained it was an erroneous perspective to begin with, right. and that journalists produce their best work when they are invested in and believe in and are closest to the things that they are writing about. And so, I, you know, I, I just, I figure that the times caught up to what I was saying back in the seventies. Now we've caught up to us, and so now everyone is a subjective journalist. You know, of and course, democracy it's gone now the other is, way. Democracy now is a great example, though, of journalism that's deep and honest and authentic, but also has a point of view and doesn't hide it. And I guess what I'm interested in is how you, mm-hmm. all these years, have had one foot in kind of establishment media and another foot in independent media, maybe a third foot in uh, Puerto Rican media. Right. Well, I've always maintained that that's the media system of America. There are three main pillars of the media system in America, the corporate or commercial press, the uh, independent uh, and uh, opposition press, uh, and the press by people of color, because both the commercial press and the radical or alternative press for 200 years excluded uh, African-Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, and Asians from 
participating in the press. I mean, you could go back to the working men's press of the 1830s, or you go to the muckrakers of the 1890s, they're all white. <laughs> uh, and uh, so that uh, basically it wasn't until the uh, the development of uh, the press by people of color, Freedom's Journal, Cherokee Phoenix, uh, uh, the various Latino newspapers and Asian American papers. So I've been lucky to have worked in all three. Yeah. In the press by people of color, in the commercial press, and in the dissident press. Uh, and uh, Democracy Now! is an example of the dissident press. So uh, the, the Palante newspaper, when we started with the Young Lords, yeah. was part of the press by people of color. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and so, but all of them... It, produce a battle over narrative and they all produce a a contesting viewpoints. And the thing to understand is there are excellent journalists in all of them and they're terrible journalists in all of them, Uh, but they all play a role uh, in defining what it is, the, 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 how the American people receive their news and information. Right. But in your journalistic career, one of the things that stands out, and it'd be interesting you talking about how democracy now went from a little thing when you and Amy started it and into the thing it is today. But, but I'm interested in how, as a journalist, you have always said, I want to get the story of the people themselves. And you've positioned yourself to do that, whether it's in Puerto Rico or Panama or East New York or wherever. Uh, Talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, that's that's part of the issue of whether you're going to be embedded, uh, whether you're going to tell the official story, or whether you're going to tell the story that's not being told. So I, I've always, um, uh, I've always tried to, if I'm covering a story, uh, tell the story from the perspective of the people that are uh, um, that is affecting most. And and so, um, you know, I'll never forget once when. This was when I was a young reporter again in Philadelphia in 1980, 81. The Mario boat lift came, and uh, uh, and there was a, a several thousand Cubans who were shipped from Miami to you know, Fort Indian Town Gap in central Pennsylvania. And so, of course, the Philadelphia Daily News sent a young reporter uh, to uh, a gal by the name of Julie Lawler, uh, and she was she was a rising star in the newsroom. And uh, they sent her to cover the the Mario. Uh, uh, refugees. And the first day she got there, she called back and she said, listen, uh, there's not enough translators here. I don't speak Spanish. Could you send Juan to help translate for me? Because I was the only Spanish speaking reporter uh, uh, in the in the newsroom. So they, they didn't send me to actually write stories. They sent me to help Julie <laughs> translate and uh, so that she could write the stories. And uh, uh, when I got there, I realized number one that the translators were not properly translating for the other for th- those few that were there for the reporters. So the translators were telling the reporters what they wanted to the reporters to right. hear, not what the people at in Indian Town Gap were saying. Uh, uh, the other thing that struck me was the. Um, uh, that there were so many uh, Afro-Cubans, <laughs> that the thousands and thousands of people were largely uh, Afro-Cubans, which was a shock to me, because having grown up in in New York, the only Cubans I knew were white Cubans who had come over in the 60s and who were really arrogant and nasty and difficult to deal with. Uh, and so now I suddenly found all these people that were really nice, and and, and uh, even the way they spoke Spanish and the way they, they talked about their conditions was completely different. And uh, so... Uh, and so I remember translating to Julie, uh, one person was saying that things were really good in the revolution at the beginning when Che and Camilo and all the other leaders were still around. 
And uh, and she looks at me and she says, uh, "Che, uh, who's 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 Che Guevara?" Uh, you know, and I said, "Oh, th- so this is the reporter who's writing the story, <laughs> right?" Uh, and and I'm trying to explain to her basic Cuban history as well as the uh, the class composition of this migration, which right. was a very different class migration. Um, so I think that through that I began to get a better handle about you know what you can accomplish, even in the commercial media, uh, uh, if you are willing to wage the struggle. You're not going to change the general tenor of the content, but you can change the minds of some of the reporters. You can get stories in that otherwise would not have been gotten in. And and Democracy Now!, of course, had a completely different perspective. We are always were, uh, were be able to report not only what the U.S. said about Cuba, but what Cuba said about itself. And, 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 uh, and we were able able to interview a variety of uh, of major cuban leaders uh, uh, through over the decades and uh and um so i think that the democracy now played a critical role cuz when i first started there we were just three of us in 1996 uh it was amy me and uh, uh one producer i think it was dan coughlin at the beginning and and um uh today we have a uh, 35 full time people working on democracy now we have multi-million dollar studios we have like uh over uh, 2,000 stations not only in the united states but throughout latin america that play the spanish versions of the show uh in countries throughout latin america so it's grown dramatically and when i first started working there all the people in the commercial media would tell me what are you doing wasting your time with this little rinky dink radio radical radio show <laughs> right and i would say well listen the audience of the Daily News is very different from the audience of Democracy Now! Uh, and you have no idea the reach of that of that audience. Uh, and it really became clear, clearest in 1999 uh, during the Seattle uh, WTO protests when Democracy Now! played a major role in helping to alert activists all around the country about the demonstrations that were about to happen uh, at the WTO. And I remember uh, because I wrote a, I had a column and I could write my column about whatever I wanted to. So one day I go into the managing editor because we decided at Democracy Now! that we were going to go to Seattle and produce two hours of programming every morning instead of one hour directly from the protests in Seattle. So I go to my managing editor at the Daily News and I said, listen, I'm not going to be here next week. I'm going to be doing my column from uh, Seattle. Uh, and he said, what are you doing? Where, where are you going? What are you doing in Seattle? I didn't approve any expenses for you to go to Seattle. And I said to him, well, you're not paying my expenses. You're paying my salary. I'm delivering you a column, uh, two columns uh, for the week. But uh, all my expenses, my flight and my airfare will be paid for by Democracy Now! And it's going to be, there's going to be a big, this is going to be a big event. And uh, he said, he, he says to me, what's the WTO? I said, well, who's Che? What's the WTO? <laughs> no, yeah, but this is not this is not a lowly reporter. This yeah. is the managing editor Got of it. a major metropolitan newspaper right. Right, saying, what's the WTO? I said, well, it's like this super world organization that is trying to control the economies of all these countries in the world. And believe me, it's a big deal because Bill Clinton is going there. He's going to be there mm-hmm. to, uh, at the WTO. So he says, get the fuck out of my office. You know? And basically he said, okay, you can go if you 
insist on going. And uh, oh, oh, I forget this is like, we're doing a radio. Thing. Okay, I'm sorry. So no, no, it's not radio. It's podcast. Oh, it's uh, it's okay, legit. Podcast, okay. So uh, so uh, so then I go, and the first day of the protest. This, the young people shut the entire city down and there were no national reporters in Seattle. It was, there were only business reporters who were covering the the uh, the WTO uh, summit from a business perspective. There were no national reporters. No one knew this was going to happen. So suddenly the, my phone is ringing constantly from the editors who now want me not only to do what my regular columns, but to provide uh, coverage every day, you know, on the uh, on the scene coverage of the uh, the tear gassing, the shutting down of the city, the the collapse of the uh, of the of the summit, uh, and uh, so that began to show me the impact that democracy now had because it was reaching all these young people that had decided all on their own to head to the Seattle, and then of course they continued it for the next few years at every international gathering that occurred around the world uh, of the WTO or any other other international group, there were all these uh, protests. And uh, so I, so democracy now has continued to grow while most of these legacy media companies have continued to decline, right? right? Uh, they've, uh, they've lost uh, employment, they've lost revenues, uh, whereas we continue to gain support. And so that shows to me that there is a space not only to contend in the commercial and corporate media, but also to provide an alternative narrative in the dissident press as well. You mentioned a few minutes ago Palante, and so let's roll back to the Young Lords, and maybe before that, just a word about your time at, at Columbia University and the Columbia strike of 1968, and tell and situate Palante in that long few years. Yeah, well, that's it, it's it was really at um, it was really at Columbia that I first got my political uh, awakening from. Well, I met him after, within a few months afterwards. But by the people that with uh, within SDS who were critical to sort of shaping my uh, uh, um, my political understanding, uh, including Mark Rudd, uh, obviously who was the SDS leader at that at the time, uh, Lewis Cole who passed away uh, a few years ago, uh, David Gilbert, uh, who really was. Uh, as I've as I've often said, the most brilliant person I ever met uh, uh, at Columbia University was Dave Gilbert, and including the professors. Uh, and, and you may not know, but David Gilbert got out of prison after forty years and ten days last year. Yeah, so we're right. very happy and, about that. And uh, so, um, so these were the people who first began to sort of educate me uh, politically. Uh, and Teddy Gold, who was also one of the members of of SDS, it was in my class, uh, and. Uh, these were the people who first talked to me about the Vietnam War and about the and the and I'm not, I'm not talking about just talk to me. Uh, SDS back in those days used to hold late night sessions in all the dormitories, you know, where they basically were organizing and just they'd go into a floor and get as many students as possible together to talk about uh, politics and uh, uh, and uh, they were relentless in terms of trying to convince you uh, and. Uh, uh, so it was Teddy Gold and uh, Dave Gilbert mostly who spent a lot of time with me trying to convince me because I was still a conservative Catholic, yeah. You know, uh, uh, and uh, uh, so gradually they convinced me uh, to get uh, to participate. And at the same time, I was also very active in the community struggles against the uh, expansion, university expansion into into Harlem and. Uh, 
uh, and Manhattan Valley, the area just below uh, Columbia. So basically, the combination of those two things is what got me involved in the strike in 68. And uh, that's how I met all these radical renegades. <laughs> Bernadine and Bill and uh and uh what's his name? Uh Slim Coleman and and uh uh who else? Uh, Tom Hayden and all these other folks. And uh so the activism of the Columbia strike and the success of the strike uh showed me uh two things. You have to have a a syst- systematic analysis of, w- of what's wrong with the society and where you're trying to go. And two, you have to have bold actions and tactics uh to be able to uh Forced change. Uh, and so um, within a year after the Columbia strike, a bunch of f- folks, who, some of whom I knew, some of whom I didn't in the Puerto Rican community, started saying, we want to build a group in East Harlem, where well, I had originally grown up. And so we started the group that eventually became the Young Lords in New York in the summer of 69. And uh, But it was, um, it was largely the Columbia strike that helped shape me uh, politically, and then uh, I realized that I had to go back to my own community and and uh, try to figure out the best way to be able to spread uh, a different kind of consciousness in terms of social change and and, uh, and revolutionary change. And the Young Lords were a committed, brilliant uh, group of young people. The Lords were fantastic. I, I, you know, I have to tell you, you know, I, I've been with a lot of organizations over the years. I've never seen such a collection of brilliant people all in one spot, uh, as we had in the early days of the Lords uh, in, in, um, uh, in New York and Philadelphia. There were excellent people here in Chicago, too, but we just had a, a, norm, a tremendous, uh, somehow or other, uh, the conditions threw together an amazingly brilliant group of people. And it wasn't just four or five leaders. You could go down three or four levels of membership, and everyone was really unbelievably committed and dedicated and smart. And some of them became amazing uh, people. I, I, I always, uh, t- or not always, but a couple of times, I've told the story of a guy by the name of Nelson Merced, who we recruited into the Young Lords into, in Puerto Rico. He'd just come out of the Navy. Uh, 1971 or so, we recruited him and his wife Raquel into the Lord's Chapter in Santurce and in, in uh in uh, the metropolitan area of San Juan. And Nelson was brilliant. He, uh, however, he had a habit of constantly challenging the leadership, and some of the leadership in, of our ch- of our chapter in Puerto Rico didn't like that. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, so they got it into their heads that he was a police agent creating disruptions within the, uh, the organization and they decided to expel him. So we expelled Nelson. We put a big article in Palante. Nelson Merced is a police agent. His wife, Raquel, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, so Nelson left. He moved to Massachusetts. He founded an organization called Inquilinos Boricuas en Acción. Uh, uh, Puerto Rican tenants uh, in action. Uh, and they then built a the model housing, low-income housing development in Boston called Villa Victoria. Uh, he then ran for political office and became the first Latino ever elected to the Massachusetts state legislature from a largely African-American district uh, uh, in Roxbury. Uh, and uh, 
he did all of this after we expelled him, supposedly for being an agent, right? He had a, a fantastic career do, uh, fighting for housing, low-income housing uh, for the Latino community. And, 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 and we had people like Luis Gardner Costa, who's an oh, unbelievably brilliant guy who, uh, uh, after the Lords, went to Harvard Medical School, started uh, an alternative high school in Brooklyn called El Puente High School for Peace and Justice, Great and, uh, and uh, graduated all these kids who ended up going to the top school universities across the country and, uh, and did all this environmental justice work uh, way ahead of his time. You know, he just passed away, unfortunately a few years ago right. uh and um uh, but you know Juan Ramos, who was one of the uh, the leaders of the Lords in Philadelphia, then became a city councilman and was a major uh, force in the John Street administration. Uh, uh, Irma Lopez Salter. I mean, there's so many people who weren't even known major leaders, all of whom became leaders in their community, labor leaders, uh, and so that's why I say the Lords were an amazing group, uh, and um, and they really did have a dramatic effect on the latino community especially on the east coast yeah but so when they were when they were first organizing you were kind of one of the older ones right i mean what was the average age of the folks in the organization yeah. and also say a word about the racial makeup of the leadership yeah i was the oldest person on the central committee and how old were you? i was 22 uh, 21, 22. Everyone else was younger than me, right? Uh, and we had a member of the Central Committee who was 15 years old, Juan Fiortis. Ortiz. Uh, he was our finance minister. He used to walk around with bulging pockets full of cash. <laughs> he was the guy who, whenever we needed to eat or whenever we needed to pay rent, we go to yeah. fee. Go fee. to the finance we, minister. Right? Go to the finance minister. And, uh, and he was 15 years old. Uh, and uh, Pablo Guzman, our information minister, was 18 years old, right? Uh, so everyone was very young. Uh, and uh, uh, now there were also older people. Now, they weren't, they weren't in the leadership, but they were older people. Uh, but, uh, but in the leadership was a very young group. Uh, and, uh, and the point I've also made is that the Lords were perhaps the first uh, Latino group to be Black-led. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. The first Latino group to be black-led. Uh, that um, uh, there were um, uh, there were six people on our central committee uh, in the early years. Uh, th three of them, uh, Felipe Luciano, Juan Fiortiz, and Pablo Guzman, were Afro-Puerto Ricans. Uh, one, Denise Oliver, was African American. Uh, there were two who were uh, 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 light-skinned Puerto Ricans, which is me. And David Bettis, who was originally from Chicago, That's but had right. gone to, yeah. to uh, moved out uh, out to New York, uh, and that was the leadership of the organization. Twenty five percent of the organization, at least, was uh, African American or Afro Boricua. So we were a black led Latino organization, uh, and at a, and we were constantly dealing within the organization and within the Latino community over the issue of racism within the community. However. We didn't deal with it the way it's being dealt with today. And I, you know, and I have, I'm very critical of some of the, all the stuff that's being done today about uh, uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion and, yeah. and, and all the fixation on, uh, uh, on uh, eradicating uh, anti-blackness because we believed that racism within our communities, uh, that in a racist society, everyone, 
is inculcated with racism, right? Uh, and uh, but there's a difference between the racial biases that are imbued in you by the society, uh, which you have to recognize and gradually uh, overcome, and the structural policies uh, that oppress people. Uh, and uh, you can uh, you cannot confuse the two. We called one contradictions among the people and the other contradictions with the enemy. Uh, and so, unfortunately, what's happening today in a lot of universities, a lot of corporations, uh, you know, the foundation world, is that there's this fixation with rooting out individual biases. Right. Uh, and they hire all these consultants and they pay them all this money to do all these group sessions <laughs> to get at the roots of your individual biases. Meanwhile, all this is being financed by the very system that maintains uh, the structural oppression and the racial oppression. Uh, and they have no problems getting people to fight each other rather than fight the system. No one questions the system. No one questions the system of oppression and the system, especially of imperialism, which was another thing that I think is critical in the definite, how you d define progressive to me. It's everyone's progressive today, right? To me, the demarcation line in the United States of America as for who is progressive or not is who is anti-empire, who is anti the empire of the United States. That's the real dividing line of progressivism, uh, because anybody can be for social justice and, you know, and, and uh, equity and more democracy. But are, are, are you willing, are you supportive of your country, of your own country's imper uh, empire around the world or not? And uh, it's it's easy to uh, to criticize something out there and not go directly after your institution, your government. You know? yeah. uh, and so I think that's the the critical thing that we understood in the Lords that there's a difference between uh, individual racial biases, which yes are wrong and need to be uh, addressed, and those that are structural and need to be eliminated. Yeah, I mean, it's it's convenient in hyper-individualized, toxic, individualistic America to say we're going to work on diversity, inclusion, and equity, and make it an individual thing. And I often think the word racism itself has these two meanings. One is a back, backward, bigoted idiot like, you know, Cliven Bundy. Mm. Uh, but the other is owning, you know, is the structures, as you say. So you could have every white person you meet could say, I'm not racist, and they mean I'm not Cliven Bundy or I'm not Donald Sterling. Meanwhile, Donald Sterling gets in trouble for saying the N-word. Meanwhile, he made his money by owning slum property. You know, so so that's not the problem. The problem is he said the N-word. That is really a, a trick bag that is super dangerous and it's everywhere. Yeah. Absolutely everywhere. So um, I want you to talk a little bit about Harvest, and I want to invite you to throw questions up here, um, comments, questions. But before we do that, say a word about Harvest and about the thesis of what brings people to this country, and especially in light of the crisis at the border right now um, and, and the, the failed immigration policies um, across the board. Yeah, well, I... I I started working on uh, Harvest of Empire back in the early 1990s, uh, actually, and I'd finished it around 1998, 99, uh, and the first edition came out in early 2000. 
I'd never written history before, so it was a whole new <laughs> attempt uh, at uh, doing a historical research. And it's been amazingly surprising to me how relevant the book has remained over the last uh, almost 25 years. It's uh, it's now being used in about 200 colleges across the country. It's it's there's a whole like generation of young Latinos uh, who have grown up reading it in their in their colleges and high schools, and as well as other people. But I I think it's it's been used pre- predominantly in American studies and Latino studies programs, uh, and I think the um, the key issue that I try to resolve in the book is why are there so many Latinos in the United States? <laughs> why have over the last 50, 60 years has the bulk of the migration to the United States come from one region in the world, uh, Latin America? And as I try to tell the story, because there's so many different Latino groups uh, and they all have not only different they all started geographically in different parts of the country, but there were also different waves and different class characteristics. What was the overriding thing that was the cause of so much migration from one spot? And I gradually came to understand only toward the end of like the eight or nine years I took of researching the book that um, uh, that it was basically the direct result of um, the uh, imperial systems that developed uh, in the world. That in fact, that the United States is really no different from any of the other major industrialized countries in the world. Every every other major industrialized countries in, uh, country in the world developed a colonial empire in the late 19th, uh, in the er- mid 19th, late 19th, and early 20th century. Uh, and for a while they ruled those empires then, starting after World War II, the peoples of Asia, Africa, and Latin America began to demand their independence. Uh, that was largely a result of, I've understood more clearly of the fact that during World War II, all the colonial masters drafted their colonial subjects to fight in the war. The British drafted the Indians and Pakistanis. The French drafted the Algerians and the Tunisians. The Americans drafted the Puerto Ricans and the Mexicans. Uh, for instance, my father and his two brothers all served in an all-Puerto Rican regiment in World War II, the 65th Infantry. They were recruited right out of Puerto Rico. They didn't speak a word of English. Uh, they ended up uh, attached to Patton's 7th Army, the 65th Infantry, as a supply regiment through the 7th Army. So they traveled through North Africa, up the boot of Italy, and into Germany during World War II, never speaking a word of English. They were colonial soldiers, right? Uh, and so the same was true of all the other uh, 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 colonial subjects. And when those people came out, after World War II, having fought for uh, to defeat Nazism, having seen the world, having uh, helped to make uh, to uh, achieve victory for the Allied forces, they had a new consciousness, and in fact, a lot of the civil rights and independence movements came as a result of World War II veterans. Uh, Ed Roybal, 
the first Latino elected uh, to the Los Angeles City Council and then congressman, was a World War II veteran. Henry B. Gonzalez, the first Latino elected to the City Council of San Antonio in the modern era, and then congressman, was a World War II veteran. Medgar Evers was a World War II veteran. Uh, And uh, many of the civil rights leaders and the leaders of the independence wars gained their consciousness through the fight to end Nazism in World War II. And then they insisted that they wanted the same democratic rights. So what started happening after World War II, as these countries become independent, uh, there's also uh, an increasing movement of peoples from the colonies to the metropolis. Why? Because the trade routes had already been established. The communication routes had already been established as a result of colonialism. The ties between the European settlers who then maybe sponsored nannies or other people that they had when they were in the colonies to come come to the mother country. So the r- routes of of transit had already been established as a result of colonialism. So right after World War II, the third world started coming to the West. And there are, that's why there are so many Algerians, Tunisians, and Moroccans in France, Indians, Pakistanis, and Jamaicans in, in England, Syrians, and Turks in Germany. And the, so what happened is the colonial powers expected that they would only pull out the resources. They never expected that the people would come. So that's why I call it harvest of empire. It was an unintended harvest of the empire. The empire just wanted the goods. <laughs> they never expected the people would follow the goods. And at a certain point, the, the, the flow of people became so great that now in all these countries, they don't know what to do uh, about the changing demographics of their countries. And so that's the basic thesis of, of the book, that the, the, the modern migration crisis in all of the advanced industrial countries is a direct result of the inequities created by the colonial systems of the past. And that the only way you can end the migration crisis is you have to leave the wealth of these countries back in their own countries. You can't take all the wealth and expect the people just to stay, especially in a globalized world where now with transportation and smartphones and WhatsApp, everybody's communicating with everybody, you know, and, and so you cannot expect to continue to have a globalized world with such inequities and expect people to stay in the places that you're where you're ripping everything off from. You know, on the one hand, this book, if you read this book and you read Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz, a people's history, uh, indigenous people's history of the United States, read Howard Zinn, yeah. read the 1619 Project, it turns history on its head. And you said you didn't write it initially as an historian, although you're married to an historian, an accomplished historian. But, but I found that refreshing. I found it not only readable, but it's storied mm-hmm. in the same way that your journalism is storied. There are People, in fact, your own family um, makes a pretty big appearance in the Puerto Rican section. And I think that makes the thing not only profound in the way Roxanne's book or or, um, Hannah Jones, but it makes it profound because it's so personal and it's so close. Well, I tried to tell uh, stories of the... Uh, of families that all represented the the migration just because it's it's easier for people to understand the yeah. dynamics of how individuals function but but uh I saw them as emblematic of a larger 
exactly. you know, of the larger group because I think that's it, there's a tendency with some of you know, individual storytelling to make it so personal that then you lose the social impact. So I did. I try to do both. Yeah, I, uh, thought the, it, I thought the 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 tension between the personal and the social structural worked very well, and it it propelled the the book along, which makes me want to ask you if you're going to write a memoir now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm working on that. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, there's something about writing a memoir that's sort of like, you know, you're you're basically saying, oh, it's all done now. But you just got to clean up the... <laughs> no, that's an autobiography. <laughs> you know, that's, a memoir is just a little slice of your life. Yeah, you but, you uh, got more to do. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, no, my main concern... Uh, right now, I think is um, uh, is being able to get uh, the um, not just the young people active, but I think also to get a sort of better sense of uh, how we affect change at a deeper level in the society. Because uh, you know, for instance, I was telling Bill, I've been doing some research on the recent election returns uh, from this election in Chicago. I don't know all the neighborhoods yet. I don't know all the players, but I do know how to analyze data. Uh, and, um, and there's a couple, there's, there's a great uh, sense of, of um, potential, I think, and hope right now. But I think there are also some signs that people need to pay attention to, uh, which is that um, uh, this election was an election that very few people participated in. Uh, the um, the um, I think the turnout was thirty six percent, and which is a little bit better than what it's been in the last few years, but not a whole lot better. It's just a couple of percentage points increase. However, when you break that down racially and ethnically, that's where you get to get really scared, because uh, we did a whole look at the results by precinct, not by wards, because wards are too big to be able to tell what's really going on. But when you look at the precincts, of which I think there are 1,290 precincts in Chicago, uh, that um, it looks like 65% of the registered white voters voted. Now, remember, 36 37% is the citywide average. About 65% of registered white voters voted. Um uh, 26% of registered African-Americans voted uh, and 20% of registered Latinos voted. Now, that's the register. We're not talking about the over 18. For the Latino community, where that's the biggest factor, if you go to the over 18, which would include all the undocumented green card holders and citizens who didn't register, it looks like only one out of every 10 Latinos over the age of 18 participated in the election. Uh, and uh, so there was a victory for the progressives, but it was a victory of a very small sector of the overall city population. And the largest participation was in the white community mm. by far. Uh, now, compare that to when Harold Washington ran in uh, 40 years ago. When Harold Washington ran uh, 40 years ago, uh, 73% of the of all registered voters participated. Harold Washington got 686,000 votes, uh, which is more than the two candidates who ran this time combined. Epton got over 600,000 votes. So he got more than either 
Yes, the population has declined by about 300,000, something like that. So th there's, a, there's definitely a population decline. But what I'm saying is that the participation level was 73%, uh, where, as opposed to 37%. And it was as high in the black community as it was in the white community back then. Whereas now it's, it's much higher in the white community, but very low in the black and Latino community. So I think that that, and this is not just in, in Chicago. I saw the same thing happen in Phil, in uh, Philadelphia uh, when Wilson Good was elected the first black mayor uh, in Philadelphia. Turnout was very high in Philadelphia. Today, turnout in Philadelphia for most mayoral elections, there's going to be one uh, this week, Tuesday, uh, in Philadelphia, uh, uh, is very low. Uh, same thing happened happened in uh, I'm sorry uh, in uh, New York. When Dinkins, when Dinkins ran for mayor against uh, Giuliani the first time, uh, over 70% of the people voted. Uh, lately, when de Blasio won, when, when uh, uh, Eric Adams won, you're looking at 25, 30% participation level. So what is happening is the masses of the people no longer are participating in local elections. Why is that? Well, one is that they're disillusioned. With, they've been disillusioned so many times that they don't care anymore. Two is that the local there's such there's been such a decline in local media, and so little uh, emphasis or attention by local media that they will participate in the presidential elections, but they don't participate in the local gubernatorial and other elections. So there's like a dichotomy occurring between participation at the national level and what's happening at the local level. And that also means that all leaders who get elected with these these small slivers of the population have to understand that it, it, it could it could be overturned very quickly uh, because there's such a small participation level. So I think that's something that has to be addressed at some point that uh, – to deepen the involvement, uh, especially in the African-American Latino communities in the future. Certainly, Lori Lightfoot, uh, there was a big claim that it was a landslide because she won every aldermanic district, but it wasn't a landslide, right. right, when she won. I'd like to open it up for a few questions if folks have comments or questions. Yes, sir. Can we be waiting for you to be writing about Chicago politics at all, do you think? <laughs> Uh, I, I assume I will be for I'll be I'll be doing some stuff. Uh, I'll be doing some stuff, I think. And uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm again, I'm still trying to learn. Like I uh, I told uh, to I, t I think I told Bill about this. I don't even know where City Hall is yet. I've never been there. <laughs> so uh, and uh, so it's it's taken me a while to get to know the city and the neighborhoods. And but that, uh, and that's, stuff that's like your that. M.O. You don't need to know City Hall. You know, Pilsen. That's well, you know, well, that's. Yeah, I'm starting to learn the neighborhoods little by little. But yeah, yeah, yeah. it takes a while. It takes a while. But in the meantime, I'm trying to use the the skills that I have. One of the things I did often as a as an urban reporter is spend a lot of time dealing with um, with um, uh, uh, land policies, urban policies, and and so I'm uh, I have a lot of uh, accumulated experience in uh, analyzing uh, city budgets, analyzing uh, the theft of of um, of land, of public space. Uh, and I think that that's, that's the big burning question in all of urban America is the, the theft of public space uh, for private gain. Uh, and, um, and it's basically being done through all of this off the books 
what I call off the books corporations, you know, the, the uh, authorities and the, uh, and here in Chicago, for instance, I, I'm getting very deep into uh, TIFFs. Mm. Uh, uh, Good Lord. TIFFs, TIFFs. Uh, I, I, I've been spending the last several weeks doing nothing but going into these TIFF reports. Uh, and, um, and what you have to understand is Chicago is the poster child. Chicago is a poster child for TIFFs. Uh, there are 129 TIFFs in Chicago. The next nine cities combined, the next nine major cities in America combined don't have as many TIFFs as Chicago does. Chicago is far and away the biggest practitioner of TIFFs. Uh, and, um, and that there are about, uh, $2 billion sitting in these TIFF accounts. Uh, and, uh, it, they're taking in $1.2 billion a year of the city property taxes. And of course, with the property tax hike, the percentage of the TIFFs money is growing faster and faster. So, uh, and, um, and the TIFFs are being used basically to do deals for private developers for the most part. They do a little bit of public school here, a little project there, but it's mostly going to developers. So I think getting a handle on the TIFFs, uh, is, uh, and, uh, is going to be a, a major issue for the new mayor to try to figure out how he's going to finance some of the great, uh, projects and ideas that he has. Uh, there's money sitting there. Just sitting there, <laughs> you know, in these tests, uh, and um, and there's, it's possible to redirect it. So, say what TIF means. Oh, oh, tax increment financing. Tax. Uh, what a TIF is is they create a special district, uh, and then what they do is they once they create the district, any new property tax revenue of an uh, above and beyond the original what let's say they take these 20 square blocks here there's a pilsen tiff which the city is about to try to increase in size so uh, whatever the property taxes are right now those continue to go to the city but any future rev uh, increases in property taxes by as a result of a new development or an increased assessment or whatever that no longer goes to the city that goes to the TIF, uh, uh, the district itself, to use for what the district believes should be done, used for. But it's not the district that decides it. It's the mayor and it's the planning board that decides it. So they become the, a way to siphon off all new tax revenues. And of course, Chicago's property values keep going up because there's all this development gentrification. Uh, and so as the tax base grows, it's no longer going into the city coffers anymore. It's now going into these separate TIF coffers. Uh, I think the Pilsen TIF, last I looked, has... Uh, uh, Sixty-four million dollars uh, sitting there unused, uh, and uh, uh, and all the, some of these tiffs, the ones, the downtown ones are even even bigger, a hundred million, you know, uh, one hundred twenty million. They're sitting there, uh, and uh, and so whenever the mayor needs some extra money, it's like a little slush fund. You just go in there and you take the money out for whatever project you want, uh, and uh, so I think so. That's why it's called tax increment financing. Any increase in the taxes goes to finance projects for the local TIF. And like I said, there's 129 separate TIFs uh, in, amazing. Uh, uh, in Chicago right now. Incredible. Another question, anyone? Yes, yes. I just want to, going back to the beginning, to, to mention news for all the people. 
you were talking about the history of journalism and the experience of the media after you. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for reminding me. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people News for All the People is a better book than Harvest of Empire. Uh, and, uh, uh, but it, it doesn't have nearly the, the selling power that, uh, uh, that, uh, that Harvest has. But basically, uh, News for All the People is my sort of analysis of the media system in America. Uh, and it, uh, it looks at uh, the, uh, how our media system got to be the way it is today. Uh, and the basic thesis of News for All the People, like the thesis in Harvest is a little different. The thesis of, of that we developed, my co-author and I, Joe Torres developed, is that the media system in America uh, has evolved largely because of um, of the the uh, as every advance in communications technology has upset the exist the existing order of information distribution in, in the country. So every time there's a new technological advance in information, the government has to step in to the to write new rules for how the communication system in the country will develop. And we have had several major uh, stages in the communication system in America. The first was the newspaper period, which is a re direct result of the government decision to subsidize newspaper deliveries through the Postal Act of 1792, uh, which made uh, possible the greatest dissemination of newspapers in the hands of people in the history of the world. There were more papers per person in the United States in the 19th century than anywhere else uh, uh, in the world. The American people were constantly receiving news and information because the government subsidized the delivery of newspapers throughout the country. Uh, and uh, and uh, so that created a, a that was the way that the original 13 colonies and as the country kept expanding, maintained itself united through the newspaper delivery system. Uh, up to the Civil War, the Postal Service employed more people than the U.S. Army. It was the single largest institution of the U.S. government up until the Civil War was the Postal Service. And even until the 20th century, uh, it was the major way that people got their news and information, the Postal Service. So that was the first major technological revolution. Uh, then came the Telegraph, uh, the telegraph allowed instant communications and uh, allowed the creation of monopolies in communications uh, because Western Union and the Associated Press then created in information monopolies. Uh, but the government then had to create a new way for how the telegraph and instant communication would develop. Then came radio. And radio initially started out as a very decentralized system, much like the Internet when it first started, but was gradually centralized by the government through the Federal Radio Act, the Federal Communications Act of 1934, to create a centralized system where the major networks, NBC, CBS, controlled uh, the news flow in the country. Mm -hmm. But then came cable, a new technological uh, development, and cable disrupted the existing broadcast system, required a new set of laws to be developed, which became the Telecommunications Act of 19, uh, eventually became the Communications Act of 1996. Uh, and then, of course, came the Internet. So we've had like five major technological revolutions in the United States in information. Postal system, the telegraph, 
uh, radio, TV was really an extension of radio, uh, uh, cable, and now the internet. And every time technology changes the way that information flows, the government has to figure out how the hell are we going to keep control? <laughs> and how the hell are, and there's constant battles between citizen groups and business groups and other groups. How do the American people get their information? Uh, and, uh, so, uh, so really it's government policies that determine information flow. Uh, and not, uh, and, and that's, I think, the main thesis that we have in, uh, in, in, uh, in News for All the People, to understand how the system of media developed. Not, not you know, who's, yeah, we get into the races and we get into the battle for narrative, but the main thing is how did this system get to be where it is today and how can it be changed? <laughs> you know, how, how is it possible to change it? I'm going to ask you to tell one more story because there are a couple public school teachers here. Maybe just tell the story about the teacher who turned you on to journalism in your public oh, oh, school. In New York yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I only, the only journalism training I ever got, I got here in Chicago. Uh, and uh, it's uh, the, uh, I had a high school teacher in, um, in Frank Kelly High School in the East New York section of Brooklyn uh, named Pauline Bonagura. Young, uh, Italian, uh, charismatic, and uh, as I always say, she had a hopeless love affair with the English language. Uh, and uh, so she would take us in ninth grade, and and I think that's you. Uh, she would take us in the she would take us in the ninth grade and uh, have us read uh, War and Peace, <laughs> uh, and uh, and she was relentless in teaching us. Uh, grammar. That was her whole thing. You had to learn grammar to be able to write English. And so, and she was also the, the ad advisor for the high school newspaper. So Pauline Bonadure took a liking to me. She thought I, I did well in grammar. And so she, she got me to go work on the newspaper. And then she, uh, she decided that she wanted me to be her editor in chief of the newspaper in my senior year at high school. However, she said that if you're going to be the editor of my newspaper, you've got to get training. She said there is a program at Northwestern University in the Medill School uh, for high school journalists, a summer high school boot camp. Uh, and uh, she said, I'm going to get you the application. You're going to fill it out. So I filled out the application and I was accepted uh, by the program and I was given a free scholarship, but I'd never been away from home, you know, and, you know, my, my parents were you know, working class and neither of them even got out of high school. No, like junior high school, forget it. Uh, and uh, uh, so, uh, uh, so my parents wouldn't let me go. So Pauline Bonnegure came to our house. She, she said, I'm going to talk to your parents. They can't stop you from doing this. So she came to our house. She knocked on the door. She insisted to talk to my father and my mother and told them, you don't understand the opportunity your son has right now, right? You know, he's going to get an all-expense paid trip to go to Chicago uh, to learn how to be a good journalist. And uh, so she convinced them. And so they let me go. So I spent the summer of 1963 on the Northwestern campus uh, being tutored by Ben Baldwin himself, the founder of the, of the project, and uh, and a bunch of the other people in the, uh, the cherub, they call them the cherubs, the boot camp. I, I was searching for the word cherub. The cherub. Zaid was a cherub. Zaid was a cherub. cherub. Yeah. So the cherubs. Writing. Yeah. Uh, the cherubs of uh, of the Medill School uh, pro program. 
and uh, and our our paper won the you know big Scholastic Press Association prize that that year, and uh, and I think that's what helped me also get into Columbia undergraduate the, that that I'd had that experience in the newspaper, but it was all because of this one high school teacher, and it wasn't just me. As I have said, people, there were several. High school students who came out of that high school, all taught by Miss Bonagure, who went on to become major journalists uh, in uh, throughout the country as a result of the training that she gave them. And so it's you know, every once in a while you come, you're lucky to come. That one, all you need is one good teacher. There you are. <laughs> that's all you need is one good teacher. And that's really why I wanted to, you, to, you to tell that story because there are several teachers here, and we sometimes feel like we're trampled and overlooked and not taken seriously. But one teacher can have that kind of impact. And I have nothing but admiration for those of you who are teachers. And it's a great, great uh, calling. Well, listen, we're going to bring it to an end. I don't want to keep Juan here forever, but I want to repeat one thing, which is not only am I grateful to Juan and Lilia for being here, but I'm also grateful to PCB. I want you to buy a book for sure. Support this institution, not just tonight, come back again and again and be part of this community. So thank you, Juan. Thank you all for being here. Okay, folks, let's give thanks that we're alive and dancing the dialectic at this specific moment on the clock of the universe. People tell me there have been better times to be a freedom fighter and a revolutionary, and people say there have been worse times. That all may be true, but my response is this is our time, the only time we've got. So let's look unblinkingly at the society as it is, and let's get busy in the most critical work we can do, reimagining, repairing, and rebuilding this broken world. Let's stay all the way human. Thanks to Damon Williams and Daniel Kisslinger at the generative and provocative podcast, Ergo, co-conspirators Roxana Espos and Pallas Shaw. Go forward, keep rising, and make your brief time in the light a harvest of resistance. With joy in my heart and freedom on my mind, until next time.